Brother. Good morning, church. Uh, let's get started today with a moment of confession. How many of you came early today, like at 9.30, early? Yeah, there's quite a few hands. Well, thrilled that you wanted to devote yourself to prayer for an hour and a half this morning. <laughs> so thankful for that. Uh, let's turn together. As Tad said, we'll be in Galatians today. So turn with me to the very end of the book, Galatians chapter 6. And um, if you don't have uh, a Bible of your own or an app, you can look under the seat in front of you. There are uh, blue Bibles that look like this. And on those Bibles, we'll be on page 567. If you'd like to follow along, page 567. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to uh, take that one with you. If you're just joining us this morning and haven't been uh, with us this fall, you've actually come on a perfect uh, Sunday because we are reaching the conclusion of the book of Galatians. And in a sense, you'll have a way this morning of hearing what the whole book is about. Now, those who have sat through it the whole time might begrudgingly wish that they were just hearing the end, if this is uh, actually a conclusion. But Galatians chapter 6 verses 11 to 18, serve as a summation or a conclusion to this fabulous book of Galatians. And in the very first sermon on this book, all the way back in chapter 1, we said that grace and peace are Christians' present privileges due to what Christ has done. And now here at the end, we find the very same thing again, grace and peace. Except we'll notice this morning that mercy has been tossed in as a bonus. Many of Paul's other 12 letters that he wrote end with a list of greetings. He'll reach the conclusion of a letter and he'll say to particular individuals, tell them hi or give them this particular message. And then there's sort of a loosely connected set of instructions or commendations. But you'll notice as we'll read the verses in just a moment that there's none of that here at the end of Galatians. This doesn't end the way every other letter Paul wrote ends. Instead, we have a quite serious reiteration of the book's themes and a clarion call for Christians to stick with Jesus. And in that way, this book ends just like it's been going the whole time. We'll read these verses in just a moment, but we'll only cover eight of them today. But as we read them, listen for two important concepts, two important concepts. The first is you'll notice in verses 11 through 13 that the hollowness of false teachers is explained, the hollowness of false teachers. And then second, in verses 14 to 18, you'll notice the humility of the way of the cross. So listen for the hollowness of false teachers and the humility of the way of the cross. Betzabel's going to come read for us. Come on up. Isn't that a fantastic name? Betzabel is one of our newest members, and she's going to read for us verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised 
and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers, amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, if you're new to uh, the scriptures, you'll notice those large numbers are chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are verse numbers. And those verses 11 through 18 will uh, form the topics we'll be addressing this morning. We Christians believe the scriptures to be God's inspired word, that as we listen to what these verses say, we're actually listening to what God would have us to hear from Him today. So if that's a new concept for you, I hope you'll be encouraged to spend more time in the Scriptures because it's there that you'll hear from God. So take that Bible with you and maybe go back to the beginning of Galatians and read the rest of it in this coming week, and you'll be hearing from the Lord as you do so. If you look at verse 11, we have what seems to be a rather strange a sentence. But essentially what's happened here is that Paul has spent up to this point in the letter very likely dictating to a scribe what he wanted written. And here at the end of the letter, he says, now, let me have the pen myself. I want to authenticate that I'm the one who wrote this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul had spoken all of Galatians, but here, no sooner has he picked up the pen, then he returns to the false teachers and false doctrine. In verses 12 and 13, more than any other verses in the entire book, Paul sets out to reveal the hollow and hypocritical motive of false teachers. Friend, we could put it this way today, not everyone who's teaching us ideas about God is teaching us true ideas about God. And not everyone who's claiming to tell us the truth for our own good is actually after our good. You see, the, the problem present in these verses is still one present today. People who claim to teach us spiritual ideas sometimes have motives that are less than ideal. For all their rhetoric and resolve about the law of God, and in this case, in the book of Galatians, the absolute necessity of circumcision for salvation, it turns out that these false teachers who had come into Galatia were not genuine in their theological convictions. Verse 12 says that they were about self-preservation. And verse 13 says that they were about self-promotion. I want to consider both of those carefully with you uh, today. Because of how much false teaching we pre are presented with. First, let's think about self-promotion. 
preservation. In the first century, the false doctrine being preached was that salvation or the way to be made right with God was partly the work of God and partly the work of people. God did His part by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Now we are to do our part by obeying all of the Old Testament law if we're to be made right with God. You see, God did His part, and now we're to do our part. That's what these teachers in Galatia who had followed Paul were presenting. But as we've seen, church, that is a false gospel. That might sound right, but it's not. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is 100% God and 0% man. Our part is simply to repent and believe. God's part is everything else. God's part is the gospel from beginning to end. The gospel was accomplished, you see, by God and God alone. Our part isn't part of the gospel. It is rather simply to hear the truthfulness about Jesus, to believe, and to respond. But in the first century, these people who had come into the churches in Galatia, who had weaseled their way in, were persuasively teaching, no, it's grace plus works. And in particular, what would certainly seem strange to us is that they were calling all the men who wanted to follow God to be circumcised. Mama guess says you didn't wake up this morning hoping to come here about a medical procedure. We won't have any drawings or go into any more detail. But this idea of circumcision in the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of your Bible, had been an important sign of obedience and of reception of the promise of the Messiah. But you see, now that the Messiah had come, what we all will be celebrating this week, the birth of Jesus Christ, now that the Messiah had come, all of the Old Testament signs and all of the Old Testament commandments that were symbolic in nature were in fact fulfilled. They had reached their conclusion and therefore they were no longer needed. And in that way, these commands, like circumcision, had become totally irrelevant. They had literally nothing to do with whether or not someone could receive the grace of God. Now today, of course, we're not so much taught that we must be circumcised to be right with God. And all the men said, Amen. But we are of course, still taught ideas that aren't quite right. People who teach that if you have enough faith, God will heal you. People who teach that Jesus is just one of many equal ways to God. People who teach that the gospel comes with the promise of wealth. People who teach that the Bible is an evolving story and we've now moved beyond particular aspects of it and we're free to change it as we wish. 
or if you've watched the news this week, maybe you've seen the tragic story of the church in California where the church has been gathered all week to pray for a two-year-old to be resurrected. And the pastor is teaching that that is, in fact, promised. There are, friends, false teachers presenting distorted versions of what really, if we would be careful, we could say are no longer rightly called Christianity. Because these aren't the promises that God makes to us in this life. In the first century, these kinds of teachers were present in Galatia and they were about self-preservation. They are not what they seem. If you look at that verse 12, you'll see this phrase, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. That's a rather churchy way of just saying they wanted to look good. They sought to preserve a particular reputation among the Jewish societies. And they were all caught up with the exterior. Friend, if you're hearing this message this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to listen carefully for the next few moments. You see, it's, it's easy to misunderstand what Christianity is all about. It's easy to misunderstand the message of the church. This book, the Bible, is not mainly a set of rules to follow. It's not mainly some vague sense of spiritual positivity. It's not a perceived or prescribed set of actions that you must perform in just the right way to earn or to merit the favor of God. Now, to think those things is to miss the point. You see, the nature of Christianity isn't outward. It isn't about what you look like. It isn't about what you do. The nature of Christianity is inward. It's something God must do inside of us. It's not something we can, in fact, see or cause. Genuine, healthy, biblical Christianity is not about the appearance of godliness. It's not about constraining people to some external sense of a particular set of norms. What we are about here at Church on Mill is not about pressing people to a facade. Friends, Christianity is a religion of the heart. It's not a religion of the behavior. God is after inward transformation, not external conformity. And only the God of grace, through the gospel of grace, given by the Spirit of grace, can bring about this kind of change. Jesus is the only one who's been internally pure, the only one who's lived a perfect life. And therefore, at Christmas, what we're actually fully celebrating as we think about Jesus is not simply that he came to earth, but rather that he came to earth in order to demonstrate the perfect life, be God in flesh, in order that one day he would die in our place 
so that after that death he would be resurrected. Why? In order that all people who would ever trust him would experience not simply a change in what we look like or a change in our behavior, as important as that is, but rather that we would get new hearts, that there would be a renovation of the heart that only God can bring about. Friend, if you've never trusted Christ, you can do so today. You can turn from sin and turn to Him, and you will experience what Christianity is. It's an inward change that, yes, does result in progressive outward changes, but that order has to be right or it simply isn't Christianity. If you look at verse 13, you'll notice that the aim in forcing Gentile Christians to obey the Old Testament commandments wasn't ultimately their own good, but rather it was the avoidance of persecution. The avoidance of persecution. Now, this is where we find something rather shocking. I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that we Christians have long been persecuted for our faith. But did you know that the earliest persecutions of the Christian churches were not the Romans? They get all the press. And certainly they did persecute Christians in some very gruesome ways. But the earliest forms of persecution were not from the Romans. They were from the Jews. It was the Jews who first snot <laughs> sought to snuff out Christianity. If you're Jewish, I promise that was not a Freudian slip. It was the Jews who first sought to snuff out Christianity. It was a pretty good sentence, but I messed it up. <laughs> These false teachers figured that as long as they avoided the rough edges of the cross, as long as they sanded down the edges that said that our sin is so severe that it can only be solved at a bloody cross, as long as they smoothed out the edges, that said no human being can ever do anything to merit the favor of God, then they wouldn't be persecuted by the Jews. So they could claim the cross of Christ, but if they still held to all the Old Testament laws, then they would be safe. You see, it was self-preservation, plain and simple. These false teachers who had come into the churches of Galatia were not after the spiritual good and joy and peace and thriving of these new young Christians. They were after their own physical safety. Church, it's no different today. What gets cut out of the easy believism so often taught is the raw, unadulterated, beautiful message of a crucified king. False teachers are not compelled by godly love 
to set us free from the oppressive truth of the Bible. Friend, they are after selfishness and greed. They are after their good, not yours. Their aim is not to maximize your joy in God, but to minimize their own difficulties in this life. What a serious warning for us. Now, how do we know that to be true? Well, the first half of verse 13 tells us. It says that these false teachers sought to hold the Galatians to standards they couldn't even keep themselves. So if you put all those pieces together, you see not only were they intentionally distorting the gospel and adding works to it and doing so from motives that weren't pure, but on top of all of that, what they were calling for in public, they were not living themselves in private. Friends, that's how legalism works. Isn't it? Those who preach works the loudest tend to be the ones who are living from it the furthest. It's a paradox, but it's true. People who claim to be right with God on the basis of their own works, they know deep down that their works are not enough. And that's why these are often the most miserable people you will ever meet. And so what happens is externally they give the appearance of living righteous lives. And they teach us to follow the same rules. And that if we don't follow the rules, then we're not right with God. It's a works by salvation by legalistic behavior. But inside very often the very same people actually live the most liberal, ungodly lifestyles. We might say that legalism and liberalism are kissing cousins. They go together in ways that ought not be. Not only are self false teachers about self-preservation, though, we see also in verse, the latter half of 13, that they're about self-promotion. The phrase at the end of verse 13 captures this idea well. It says that they might boast in your flesh. Paul's point is that these teachers sought to use circumcision to make themselves appear successful. Can you imagine, this is, this time of year we get lots of uh, Year-end reports. Maybe you give to uh, a nonprofit, or you support a specific missionary in some place. Very likely, you've already gotten a year-end report from them explaining what happened in the ministry. So, can't you see the the year-end report of these false teachers making its way around the city of Jerusalem? It might be headlined: two hundred circumcisions. With the teaser underneath, John and Brad, longtime residents of Jerusalem's Upper West Side, convinced 200 Galatian Christians to get circumcised. 
The advancement of circumcision, though, turned out to be the advancement of self. It was never about you. It was always about them. They are insincere in the most egregious way. And we see the same thing today. As prosperity gospel preacher after prosperity gospel preacher after prosperity gospel preacher inevitably eventually fall because they've taken what's been given for themselves. Now, enough of the negative side of this. Let's consider the happy side, the second half of these verses. That talks so clearly and plainly and helpfully about how we're to humbly walk the way of the cross. Look with me at verse 14 and think of this as a positive, not a negative. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Friend, this is the good news Interestingly, the word boast is used negatively in verse 13, but here the very next verse, it's used as something we're to emulate. Paul says that he boasts only in the cross. And later he says that all Christians are to walk by this rule. Now, boasting is one of those things that's difficult to define or to describe, but we know it when we see it. We might not be able to articulate exactly what it is, but we can say, ah, there's an example. A man who turns 50 might boast in his new sports car. A mom of her firstborn might boast in her beauty. An athlete boasts in his championship ring. An artist in her most prized painting. A PhD might boast in the extent of their education. This is what boasting is. We're all familiar with it. Boasting is something to to revel in. It's what we put complete confidence in. It's what we trust. It's what we glory in. It's what we're obsessed with. That's what boasting is. In secular Greek literature, boasting was often described as what you do at the end of a battle in which you win, and you would yell, and that yelling is boasting. It's to pronounce and declare victory, confidence in self. Now, if we look closely, Paul says he boasts only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear the music of boasting? I think your phone's ringing. Your phone is ringing. Yes. Yeah. 
boasting in the cross. Unfortunately, that doesn't strike us like it would have in the first century. That's like saying, I glory in the electric chair. I am obsessed with lethal injections. I put all my confidence in torture and slaughter. That's just weird. In, In contrast to the hypocritical false teachers, Genuine Christians know that the blazing center of God's love for fallen humanity is the cross of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we see that as our only place of victory, of boasting, of trust, of confidence. We know that our only hope in life and death is the Lord Jesus. We know that our works could never save, but Jesus' work has already saved. And consequently, we glory in God's work in Christ as He turned this object of shame into the place of forgiveness and peace, satisfaction, and hope. If you look carefully at verse 14, you'll notice rather, perhaps if you see it for the first time, rather oddly, that Paul speaks of what we might call three different crucifixions. The first is he talks about Jesus' death, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that physical, actual, historical event where Jesus died. And then second, he speaks of the the world's crucifixion to the Christian. What is that? Well, he's talking about the sense in which all the allurement of the world has died to the Christian. It no longer has power. And finally, third, he talks about the the Christian's crucifixion to the world. The sense in which a Christian has died to the things of the world. There have been some verses earlier in the book of Galatians that referenced some of these senses in which we can talk about the crucifixion. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, there is a sense in which you were crucified with Christ. So that as Christ died, you died Two, as Christ was raised, you were raised too. And so the life that we now live, brothers and sisters, is not a life of our own strength. It's not a life of our own substance. It is the very life of Christ within. Later in chapter 5, verse 24, he said, Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Friends, the things that once held us that we could not, in fact, stop, that dominated our lives, those chains have been broken. 
we are now free. The point here is incredibly important. Beloved, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, that moment, whether or not you knew it, whether you know the day and the time and the place and the hour, it's rather inconsequential. But that moment in which you turned to Christ and were saved, then you were united to Him. When Christ died on the cross, you died too. And all your bondage to the world, all your separation from God, all your guilt and shame, your opposition to Him, all of that died with Jesus. This ultimately is the best news of Christmas. The baby didn't stay a baby. He grew up into a man who took our place that we would be set free. And friends, this also means that all our attempts at self-salvation, those died too. The cross humbles us like nothing else because it shows us the full extent of our helplessness. And it reveals the scandalous gospel that God would give himself. So all our temptation to boast in our own glory and in what we have done for God this year turns out to be hollow, unnecessary, pathetic. Because we've already died to all of that. Christians, the cross of Christ freed us. The cross brought the dawn of a whole new age. The cross has made us part of a new creation. And now, day in and day out, church, we must walk in this way of the cross. The way of not boasting in ourselves, but of boasting in our Savior. And doing so collectively as we help each other to walk with Christ. Paul Tripp, an author many of you are familiar with, helpfully tells us that every day we are in an all-out glory war. Will we be seeking our own glory? Will we be boasting in ourselves? Or will we be boasting, rejoicing, celebrating, pointing to only what Christ has done? I wonder what would happen this week if we thought of that glory war many times throughout the day. Will we supremely trust and be obsessed with Christ? Or will we seek our own glory? Brothers and sisters, as we walk this way of the cross, we must recognize that living the gospel life has a way of not avoiding, but inviting persecution. It's the exact opposite of what the false teachers were trying to avoid. This certainly brought persecution on the Apostle Paul. That's what he means in verse 17 when he uses this rather cryptic phrase that he bore on his body the marks of Jesus. At the end of the letter, the the authentication, in a sense, of the gospel that Paul had preached was not that he had been marked by circumcision, 
but that his body had been beaten so many times within an inch of his life that you could literally look at him and see the scars of his preaching. While the mark of circumcision or the lack of it is a matter of total irrelevance, Paul had lived a faithful life in accordance with his Savior because he boasted only in what Christ had done for him. While works are not necessary for salvation, the work of living out the life of faith together in church will not leave any of us without scars. We too are called to self-sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, as Jesus' church, the way forward for us together, seeking to make a difference here in Tempe, is not reveling in our own wants, our desires, our accomplishments, our sense of what's best. The way forward, the way up, is by walking in the way of the cross as we humbly kneel before Christ. For it is there and there alone that peace and mercy will be upon us. Church, if we were to summarize Galatians in just one word, it's very clear that that one word would be grace. Grace. Far more than something we say at the dinner table. Grace is the essential message of Christianity. We are right with God and welcomed into His family by grace. We remember the birth of the Savior this week by grace. We've made it through yet another year by grace. We marvel at this biblical message of grace as we finish this book, this book that's all about grace. And friend, we will continue walking in the way of the gospel together only by grace. The Christian life is a life of grace from beginning to end. May we experience the God of grace as we remember the birth of a baby this week. And may we boldly, humbly, graciously, tenaciously share this message of grace. Let's pray.